0: Friends, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. As we look at the Advent story, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ through the eyes of the gospel writer Matthew, who tells the story through the eyes, at least in these this first chapter, of Joseph. You know, a few weeks ago when we were reading through our Old Testament, we landed on Genesis 37, and we read about the story of Joseph who would go on to... Uh, the second in command under Pharaoh. And we made the point that there is a strong connection, there's a parallel between Joseph and Jesus standing 2,000 years apart, that you can't read the story of Genesis 37 of a man named Joseph rising to power and sitting down at the right hand of Pharaoh to save the known world. You can't read that story anywhere near the advent without trembling at the connection and the ways in which Joseph shows us Jesus. Genesis 37, what we had read is the story of a man named Joseph. He's the descendant of Jacob and Abraham. God spoke to him in a dream to tell him of the greatness in store for God's people. That's what we had read. Well, stop me if this sounds familiar. Our passage today that I'm about to read in Matthew chapter 1 is the story of a man named Joseph. He's the descendant of Jacob and Abraham, whom God spoke to in a dream to tell him of the greatness in store for God's people. Two Josephs, 2,000 years apart, stand as bricks in God's single building of new creation. I was reading Psalm 90 this past week, which says that in God's economy of time, a thousand years is like one day. So as God looks over the scope of history and our timeline in some wonderful, majestic, awful, terrifying way, God sees the span of history as days, and it's as if in God's economy of time on Friday morning, Joseph wakes up in Canaan, he's the member of a family that's going to become known as Israel, and they're landless, and he's blurry-eyed with a dream swirling in his mind of sheaves and stars, and then two days later, it's as if, on Sunday morning, another Joseph wakes up in Canaan, part of the people of Israel who now have possessed the land, they've lost it and now they live in it and he too is bleary-eyed from a dream and has a new resolve to marry his betrothed, Mary. Our Bibles, they run deep. Don't you sleep on these stories? The second you feel like you've heard the story of Joseph and Egypt and the story of Joseph in the Christmas pageant so many times, you could tell it in your sleep. God goes and snaps a chalk line 2,000 years across history and goes on building a new creation. We're going to read part of that in our story this morning from Matthew chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray together. It, it's this kind of Jesus, Lord God, that we want to meet with this morning. The kind of Jesus who can save his people from their sins. Would you join us, we ask, in your name? Amen. You know, one of the many perks of being the senior pastor of a church is that when you open up Christmas texts like Matthew chapter 1 and you find yourself backed into an expository corner because a genealogy leads out this chapter, one of the perks is you slide that thing across the table to the associate pastor and you make him preach on it, which John did last week and did a masterful job, and I still have swirling in my mind this kind of motley crew that makes up Jesus' family tree. Now, we understand that typically in Jesus' day, you wouldn't list women in a genealogy. This is a patriarchal society. You list the father who gave birth to the son, who gave birth to the son, and so on and so forth. And so when Matthew breaks protocol at the beginning of this gospel, and he peppers his genealogy with women, we sit up and take note of who he's talking about. As John pointed out, the women that he mentions, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, they're all prickly characters with tough stories in the Old Testament. They're either guilty of outright prostitution, as in the first two, or they're swirled in some kind of scandal uh, and intrigue in the second two. As John read from the British commentator, their stories do not fit comfortably into traditional uh, patterns of sexual morality. I thought that was funny when John read that. Um, Let's just say that I've never seen a Christmas pageant done that includes the first half of Matthew and the women that we find there, right? They're not included in any kind of comfortable telling of this story. And that isn't even to begin to mention the men who are here and their heinous acts of idolatry and adultery. Now, the reason I say all this, the reason I bring back up the genealogy before we transition into our passage Isn't it interesting that when we begin the Christmas story, when we begin hearing about Jesus and his birth, and we meet this adorable little couple, Joseph and Mary, who are God-fearing and who are going to be joined in marriage, at the outset of this story, they are thrust into what could quickly become another outrageous sexual scandal. Why is this here? Why didn't the angel get to Joseph before this and just tell him so that he would understand this and we don't have all this intrigue in these first few verses? Well, today I just want to do something very simple. I want to walk through this story so that we understand it and then I just want to make one observation from the story of the birth of Jesus. We learn this story in verse 18 that Mary was betrothed to Joseph but Matthew's quick to point out this is before they came together. Now, Matthew's not just using a euphemism for the birds and the bees. He's reminding us of how engagement worked in first century Israel. Um, And it works in this way. Two fathers get together and they arrange a marriage. If they find that their kids are suited to be married together, they're the ones that initiate this betrothal, this engagement. And unlike our engagements today, a verbal promise, this was a legally binding contract. Two people came together in their engagement, and the only way to break an engagement in this time was by death or by divorce. It was that serious. Now the couple were not living together, they were each in their parents' homes, and it would take about a year or less before there would be a public wedding ceremony, much as we do today, at which point the community would gather, they would celebrate the marriage of these two, and then the wife would leave her family, and she would come together with her husband to live with him and to consummate their marriage together. So when we arrive on the scene, Mary's in her house, Joseph's in his house, but they have this legally binding betrothal between them, so much so that the only way out of this thing is death and divorce. And as they're in this engagement, the worst possible news surfaces in verse 19. Mary was found to be with child. She's pregnant. Now that is is a terrifying, life-changing, rock-through-a-window, life-altering situation for Mary and for Joseph and their families. Uh, adultery and, and cheating is is scandalous in our society today. But it's very hard for us to transport ourselves back into what it meant for this close-knit, chaste society to learn that one of its members had broken a betrothal through, uh, through adultery. Julie and I got a window into what this community looks like when we lived in India, in a very tight-knit community. We had a house helper while we were living there, and she came five days a week to help us with our home. And at one point, as she got to know us better, she approached my wife, and she said, Julie, I need a favor to ask. Our house helper was a widow, and she had a friend who feared that she was pregnant out of wedlock. And she said to Julie, Would you go to the pharmacy and get us a pregnancy test so that I can give it to my friend, and she can take it, and we can learn if she's truly pregnant? And Julie said why go through the hassle of me getting it? I'll just give you the money for what you need and you can get it for your friend so that she doesn't have to. And our house helper said, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that. As a widow in my community, if I walked into a pharmacy and I bought a pregnancy test, all of a sudden a scandal would hit the fan. All of a sudden I could be blackmailed by the pharmacist just for buying a pregnancy test and taking it to my friend. I could be blackmailed for that. And Julie said, well, you know, absolutely, I'll go and do this for you. And so she went to the pharmacist, she bought the pregnancy test. As she exchanged money and was leaving, the pharmacist said to her, congratulations. I mean, can you imagine that happening in CVS, entering a conversation like that? This is a close-knit community where everybody knows everything, and everybody's in everybody's business, and there are no secrets. And you transport yourself 2,000 years into Mary's situation, and she is terrified. Mary is 13 or 14 years old. That's when you were wed in those days. She's living under the roof of her parents and their care and protection. She's promised to be married to the son of family friends and it now appears that she has done the unthinkable. She has thrown all that away and committed adultery. Can you imagine the horror that's in store for Mary's parents? and the shame of having a daughter who has done something like this? Can you imagine the injustice and the embarrassment in store for Joseph's family? This is the woman you chose to be wed to your son? Can you even begin to imagine the public scandal, the utter shame that's going to be heaped upon Mary for this? Where can an adulterous woman go? She's spurned her parents. She has wrecked her engagement. She has shamed herself. She will never, ever, ever in this life receive another marriage proposal again. What is to become of Mary? Well, we learn that Joseph, for his part in verse 19, is a just man. He's a righteous man, which means he is a man who abides by God's law. And according to the Old Testament, adultery warranted death by stoning. That's how utterly serious this is. But in New Testament times, Israel was living under Roman rule, and so adultery warranted divorce, as Jesus will later uphold in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's easy for us to look back on this story as Monday morning moralists and to say to ourselves, if if divorce would have been so devastating for Mary, and so utterly terrifying, and leaving her alone in the world, why not just marry her? But I think all of us understand a feeling of betrayal. All of us know what it's like to be deeply hurt by someone, deeply embarrassed by a situation, all of us still in our lives nurse wounds new and old and think of things we could have said or should have said to save our face before another person. All of us have experienced claiming our own rights in a situation that we've been hurt. And for Joseph's part, he will do that. But he doesn't want to shame Mary publicly. He resolves in his heart, I'm going to divorce her quietly and spare her as much as I can. Once his mind is made up, Joseph goes to bed and a miracle happens. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him what Mary could not have explained to Joseph in a thousand years, and that is the son that I have in my womb is not from me, it's from God. This is the Messiah, and he will save his people from their sins. Now, I have no idea how much of that Joseph could have understood in one dream. That's a lot to pack in in one night's sleep. But we do know that when Joseph woke up in the morning, he had a resolve to obey God and do the unthinkable and marry his betrothed Mary. I want to let the weight of that decision sink in on us for a moment this morning. Surely, Joseph was not the only person who suspected that Mary had been unfaithful. He wasn't the only person to know that Mary was pregnant because right now they're not even living in the same household. They're each in their respective families' houses and they don't have a lot of contact with each other. So for that news to get to Joseph, it would have had to pass through other people. So who knows at this point that Mary is suspected of being unfaithful? Is it Mary's parents and her parents, friends, and confidants who they've shared with? Is it Joseph's? parents and his parents friends whom they've shared with is it mary's closest friends whom she has spoken to who knows at this point point? and if they don't know at this point they will know very soon because every single person in their community has received a save the date postcard for a marriage that's going to happen a year from now and all of a sudden they're hustled to a wedding ceremony and they see a son that's born to mary shortly thereafter and every single person in that community is saying hmm I wonder what happened. I wonder how that came about. When Joseph took Mary to be his wedded wife, he brought a world of shame into his household and he absorbed the humiliation of it. Joseph probably lost friends. He probably lost business contacts and customers. He lost respect he was probably passed over for leadership opportunities in his community and in his synagogue. Joseph paid dearly to marry his wife. I'm not just imagining what's behind the text in this story because we learned that 30 years after this, 30 years later, when Jesus is a grown man, the Jewish leaders will slight him in John eight forty one and say to him, but we ourselves, we weren't born in sexual immorality, which is just a polite way for one man to say to another, Jesus, your mom is a whore and we don't know where you came from. The shame of taking Mary to be his wife will dog Joseph and Jesus their entire lives. There was a price to pay on this tainted marriage and Joseph paid it in suffering. Now, as we look at the scope of this story, as we look at at what transpires between the two, I want to make one very simple point from our text, and that is this. When Joseph does this, when Joseph takes an adulterous woman to be his wife, he shows us what Jesus is like. Joseph shows us Jesus. We said from Genesis 37 that that Joseph, who went on to rule in Egypt, is a mega type of Christ. He is a foreshadow, an example of what Jesus will be like. 2,000 years later, this Little Joseph, who gets a few verses in our Gospels, his role is small. He will be a mini type of Jesus. He will show and foreshadow what Jesus is like because Joseph is to marry what Jesus will become to the many. According to the law, Joseph had every legal right to divorce Mary. According to his community, he had every right to publicly shame her. But he doesn't do it. Joseph shows us Jesus. However imperfectly he does this, Joseph cancels the record of debt against Mary and its legal demands and forgives her. However imperfectly, Joseph took the shame that should have landed squarely on Mary's shoulders and he invites it into his own household and he bears the cost of that for his entire life. That's what Jesus is like. That's what Jesus does. Joseph shows us Jesus. Now, Mary, for her part, she wasn't guilty of adultery in this case, but we are. You and I stand guilty before God. There's not a single person in this room or in this world in, or in our history, Mary included for her other sins, who does not watch the law of God, the Ten Commandments, pass overhead and block out the sun like a dark thundercloud that will rain judgment down on us. Shame on you and shame on me. Shame on us for our adultery and for our idolatry, and for our gossip, and our slander, and our greed, and our gluttony, and for our self-absorption, shame, shame, shame. I think we'd like to think of ourselves approaching the Christmas Advent as a joyful shepherd, baby lamb underhand, skipping to the manger scene. I think we'd like to think of ourselves as a wise man who is thoughtfully bearing gifts to meet Jesus at his birth. But I think another appropriate place to find ourselves in the Christmas story is as a terrified young Mary, guilty and ashamed and alone. If we do that, if if we find ourselves there, we will meet in those moments a Savior who is more just and sweet and good than his early adoptive father, Joseph. Far from avoiding the dark places, he runs to them. His name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins like Judah who stayed the hand of judgment against the prostitute Tamar like the spies who found Rahab and led her and her entire family out of the city of Jericho like Boaz who spread his garment over Ruth like David who grabbed Bathsheba and brought her into his palace and made her a queen so also our savior Jesus finds us in the darkness of our shame and grabs us and weds us and makes us pure. Joseph shows us Jesus. Romans 10 quotes one of the New Testament's favorite passages in the Old Testament. It comes up again and again and again, and I think the reason the New Testament writers quote it so often and get so giddy around Isaiah 28 is because it's a promise that sounds too good to be true. Romans ten eleven through 13 says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. It's too good to be true, Lord Jesus, that you take the world of my sin and my shame, you take my guilt and its demands, and you place it upon yourself, and you pay in suffering and in humiliation for the sins of your people. Lord, I pray that as we approach Christmas, we would understand our sin like a trembling Mary, but that you would meet us in our shame, And that you would remind us that in the gospel you forgive the whole of it and you draw us to yourselves. We praise you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.